I am not sure if we will have time for Q&A. So if we leave um, and you guys have a question or want to keep in touch, you can take a picture of this little nifty thing I did over here on your way out. Um, so yeah. Still have three minutes left? Three minutes left? <laughs> Where are you from? I'm from Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, I'll start out um, this message with a, a little bit of that. Some, some, this is what I look like then, this is what I look like now. Some photos like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I grew up, uh, so I guess some stuff that I don't say in it, I'm a military kid, so I moved around a little bit. Um, lived in, I was born in Alabama, then I moved to Kentucky, um, then we moved to Germany. And then we moved to Georgia. Yeah, so just a little bit. Move around just a little bit. But yeah. Where in Alabama were you born? You know, I forget. It's either Birmingham or Montgomery. <laughs> um, yeah, I have an older brother. And so one of us was born in one of those places. <laughs> but yeah, one of those. Once I left Alabama, you know, I thought about going to Troy for graphic design. Uh, that's where my parents went. That's where my parents met and fell in love and got married. But I ended up at, yeah, Columbus State University instead. With that. So I have an English degree, a degree in English, professional writing, and a minor in communication. So yeah, any English people out there, shout out to you guys. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. All right, so I think I'm just gonna go ahead and dive in. So excited to meet all of you guys here and talk about this really great discussion. You know, my opinion a little bit biased. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about me before we jump in. Um, my name is Mary Brown. I uh, met my husband at Columbus State University um, back in, who? I graduated high school in 2009, yeah. So met my husband at Columbus State University on my first mission trip to the Atlanta Dream Center. Come so on. yes, I volunteered to wash dishes and then he volunteered to wash dishes and then as you would say, the rest was history. <laughs> um, except um, after that, could you, would you guys believe the first time I met him, I wasn't the slightest bit interested. These slides have been interested, y'all. When we tell the story of like how we met and things like that, you know, there's always like two different stories. Yeah, I'm like, mm -mm. I wasn't feeling you at all, bro. <laughs> um, fun fact, he's a little bit younger than me, so that played a big role into it. Also had just gotten out of a really horrible relationship, so all guys were like <laughs> off limits. Um, but yeah, through some persuasion, through us becoming friends, through the Holy Spirit, honestly, y'all, <laughs> and his perseverance, we dated, we gave it a go. Dated a little bit um, for about a year and then broke up. Uh, we both need to grow and mature. And then we, about a year later, we dated again. That one was way smoother. And we got married. <laughs> so here's a, how it started. So we did in May 2015, y'all. We were babies. We're still babies, but we were really babies then. And then how we sort of look now. Um, so yeah, we got married in August 2020. I know, right? The glow up. <laughs> this is our engagement pictures we took in the Kyle HBCU shirts. Um, and so, yeah, a little bit of, our, of my missionary history. I've been a missionary with Kyle for seven years. Started out at Columbus State University, did the campus missions and training program. Um, felt that the Lord was leading me to become a director. Um, so then I went on and became the interim director at Georgia Southern University in Statesboro. And then shortly after that, went on the process to become um, nationally appointed so that I could pioneer and plant Chi Alphas at the historically black colleges and universities in Atlanta. So me and my husband got married and we moved here. We're about 30 minutes from here. And um, we are pioneering at Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta. So we just started this semester, guys. One semester down, many more to go. We ministered to about um, seven students who were struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. I wish they could be here today, um, but HBCUs honestly attract college students from all over the world, so they flew back home to California and um, Chicago, other places like that. So, you know, first semester, we gotta like continue to cast some vision for salt, but 
so excited for you guys to be here. And I can honestly say that SALT changed, not SALT, well, SALT did change my life. But Chi Alpha as a whole changed my life, radically impacted me, um, helped me learn where my identity in Christ, um, how, like, where, where my identity comes from, which is in Christ. Um, it revealed some wounds to me that I need to get healed. All of those different things. And so prayerfully, um, with this class, you guys will get a little bit of that, too, as we focus on finding our identity in Christ. So I'm going to pray really quick, and then we're going to jump in. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today and for allowing us to come and discover how to find our identity in Christ. And so I pray that all of us are, that are here, that we don't leave here the same, Lord, um, that you speak to me in bulk. <clears throat> with boldness and confidence and that um, the Holy Spirit allows us to, to hear something that convicts us and changes us, Lord, um, and that we leave here with the desire to know our identity in Christ and to go on the journey to find that even more. And I just pray all those things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So when we, oh, can y'all hear me fine like this or should I use a microphone? <laughs> I forgot. I'm supposed to use this microphone. Is that better? No, whatever. Okay. You know, you know what? They brought it here. I'll use it. So anyway, I am a definitions person. So when we're talking about finding our identity in Christ, one of the first things that I want to hit on is what in the world is identity in Christ? Is it just one of those Christianese terms that we hear about, like righteousness and justification that nobody actually ever knows what it means? <laughs> and so for me, I went ahead and looked on dictionary.com and BibleStudyTools.com because I really wanted to do a comparison and contrast of what is a generalized overview of what the world says is our identity versus what is it supposed to be when we find it in Christ. So Dictionary.com suggests this, that, the, that our identity is the condition or character as to who a person or what a thing is, the qualities and the beliefs that they have that distinguishes or identifies that person or thing, right? So what are we saying? Identity is just basically qualities, beliefs that a person has, the values that they have. But all of these things without Christ is just a generalized version of identity, right? When you put on the in Christ version, this is sort of a quote that I got from BibleStudyTools.com. I use BibleStudyTools.com Bible to look into their commentaries and things like that. Um, there's a lot of different reference checks on there. And so, yeah, I typed in... Um, Identity in Christ, and this is what popped up. The Bible tells us that our identity in Christ is part of accepting his gift of eternal life through faith. Jesus gave his life on earth and rose from the grave to conquer death and sanctify those who believe in him. When we become followers and believers in Jesus, we lose our identity of this world and embrace our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is being a member of his body in the church. So, in other words, it's not just about the generalized qualities or beliefs or characteristics that we get when we're born into our world. Our identity in Christ comes from being saved and then changing out our old identity into our new identity that we get after being um, becoming a member of, of the Christ, becoming a member of Christ. <laughs> so some of the Bible verses that we can reference that talks about that. Psalms 51 and 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The NIV version says it like this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So what is this talking about? When we are born into this world, we are naturally given characteristics, values, beliefs, things like that. But it's not enough just to accept that identity that we were given, because we're born into sin. We're shaped with iniquity. What does shaped with iniquity mean? Not only was I born into sin, like none of us came into this world saying, I want to know Jesus. I mean, that was awesome if you did. But none of us just popped out of our mother's womb saying, you know, I want all of these different things, right? We were born into sin. Shaped with iniquity means not only were we born into sin, but we were shaped by the sin of others, shaped by the sin of this world. So it's not enough just for us to say, I can accept the natural identity that I was born into when I was here. <clears throat> Then you get to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
So again, not only are we born into sin and shaped with iniquity, there has to be a transformation. It's not enough for us to say, I accept the identity that I have just popping out of my mom's womb. I can't just be conformed to this world, but I have to be transformed by the renewing of my mind so I can figure out what God's will is for me, so I can figure out what God's identity is for me. Then you get to 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new things have come. So we had an old identity with our old man, and when we become saved, we need to accept a new identity that comes with being born again. And then lastly, John 1, 12 through 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So again, we're born to our earthly parents. It's typically our earthly parents' jobs to give us our set of beliefs, our core values, all of these different things. But just like as it says here, when we get born again, we don't just become our earthly parents' children. We become God's child. So we should be transformed. We should take on God's set of beliefs, God's set of values, and the things that he says that we should care about. So next slide. <clears throat> so in summary, when we're talking about our identity in Christ, it should look something like this. We have our old identity. We have our old set of beliefs, characteristics, values. Maybe not all bad, but they're not all rooted in the Bible either. So after we get saved, we accept our salvation of Christ. Then we should become a new creature in Christ. Then we should die to our old ways and accept Christ's way of living as our new way of living in the body of Christ. Another way of paraphrasing, another way of paraphrasing it, our old man equals our old identity, our new man equals our new identity. And so what I really want to emphasize is that we should know who God says that we are. We should care about what God says we should care about. And we should find freedom in the wounds that God did not give us. And all of this is going to take place through a transformation, though. So now that we know what identity in Christ is, I would love to discuss in our lives some of the things that we normally let define them other than Christ. So I think there's three main things that we can let define our identity instead of Christ. Family and culture, society, and wounds. And here's the thing, anything that we let define our identity other than Christ has the potential to create false identities and has the potential to create those false identities based off of unbiblical truths. And so if we're not careful, we'll let a lot of well-meaning people in our lives tell us what we should care about and also tell us what determines our value, when instead we should only want to know what God cares about and how he determines our value. So I've, let's talk about some examples. Um, I don't think you have to go to the next slide yet. So I'm going to talk about some examples of how we turn to family, society, and culture. Use some of my personal examples because I can't speak for everybody in the room, right? And so we get, to, we get to family. And I've sort of touched on this already. We're born to our earthly parents. It's their job. It's their responsibility to instill in us goals, um, characteristics, a set of values, beliefs to teach us right from wrong. And there's probably sort of a, a sliding scale of the individuals that were born into really healthy, great families with loving parents, and then maybe some other individuals that didn't necessarily get all of that. But the point is, is that even if you had perfect parents, they weren't perfect because the first verse that we read in Psalm 51 says that we were born into sin and shaped with iniquities. So we might have some well-meaning ideologies in place, but whenever they are taken out of the context of Christ, they can start out well and then kind of take, um, take a different road and turn into an unbiblical truth. So for me, for example, what does that look like? I grew up with a family that told me, I have an older brother, you and your brother must make something of yourselves. You and your brother must be the generation to make a lot of money. You and your brother must achieve, you know? Most parents want that, right? For us to do better than, um, than, than they did. They sacrifice so much so that we can get into the college and to make money, to do all of those things, right? All of that is great. All of that is well-meaning. But for me, <clears throat> what it turned into was having a constant desire for success, a constant desire for achievement. I became a perfectionist. Even to the point of today, I still struggle with being a workaholic and have to create boundaries in place. Because the unbiblical truth that 
kind of seeped in, not my parents didn't mean for it to seep in, but kind of seeped in, or the, the voice that was saying, this is what you should care about, is to make a lot of money and to be successful. But it led to this false identity of me finding my value and my worth and achievement. I had panic attacks in high school, crying myself to sleep, saying that I can't um, be under the pressure of this workload, but still feel like I have to do this so I can. For me, it felt like I had to do this in order to gain my parents' love. Because if we brought home something that wasn't an A, or even if it was an A, if it was, if it was a 90, why isn't this a higher A? You know? Playing in um, sport, I grew up playing sports, loved sports, played basketball, volleyball, track. <clears throat> was the worst at track, by the way. <laughs> um, played all those sports, but you know, family members would say, like, I'm not coming to the game to watch you ride the bench. You know, or then if I do score points, why didn't you score more points? You know? So it just kind of created this, this um, overactive need for success, this overactive need for um, perfection that started out well meaning that started out um, with well intentions. So that's just one example. And so I really wanna encourage you guys to ask yourselves, you know, what are some of the things that my parents taught me? What are some of the things that my parents, you know, started out saying that was supposed to be good, but it became overactive? And I started to find my value in it. I started to find my identity in it. I turned to that instead of Christ. Because we know what the truth is, is that a lot of times in the Bible, God's definition of success and achievement was obedience. He asked individuals to do crazy things that the world would have thought didn't make any sense. But to God, that's what he was looking for. And we also know that instead of focusing on making all the money in the world, that if we seek ye first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added to us. So yes, make money. You know, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> but we can't find our identity and our value in it. Something that um, society might say, other than you know making tons of money, um, what about beauty? That was a big thing for me. We talked about weight in my family a lot growing up. <laughs> and so it created this unbiblical truth of, um, this is what I should care about. I should care about reaching a certain number on a scale. I should care about you know, being snatched in the waist, you know, all the things. And it led to this false identity of determining my value, of basing it off of the world's definition of value instead of God's definition of value. When God says, while the world looks at the while the while the world looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. I remember for society, for my school, one of the, the big things was going to school out of state. You only made it if you if you went to school out of state, or you only made it if you went to a school outside of your city. And so again, it created this unbiblical truth that all I should care about. Um, is getting, you know, into that school of my dreams. That's out of state, that's out of city. And so when I did, at early admission, I felt like my world was over. And so what has society possibly seeped into us or told us that this is what we should care about? This is what will give us security. This is what will give us value. That is contrary to what God says. Now, when we get to the point of talking about wounds, what do I mean by that? Unprocessed trauma. Unprocessed trauma can help create false identities. Because what happens is we go through these um, circumstances, and then our body starts to react and creating coping mechanisms and creating defense mechanisms. You can go to that next slide. Creating coping mechanisms. The next slide and creating defense mechanisms to protect us from experiencing those painful situations again. But what happens with that, though, is that we begin to lean on those things and rely on those things instead of relying on God. So what's the definition of a coping mechanism? An adaptation to an environmental stress that is based on conscious or unconscious choices that enhances control over behavior or gives psychological comfort. So in other words, coping mechanism, something painful has happened in my life, and whenever um, I'm reminded of that situation. I turn to something that makes me comfortable, that gives me comfort. Some examples of that numbing activity like binge watching TV, excessive hours on the phone, overeating, shopping, pornography, any of these things, numbing activities that bring us comfort. Um, there was a friend of mine that told me that her situation in her childhood was so traumatic that her coping mechanism was going to a corner in the dark and putting a sheet over her head putting a blanket over her head, anything that we can do that we turn to to make us comfortable. 
defense mechanisms, what, how do we define that? An unconscious process as denial that protects an individual from unacceptable or painful ideas or impulses. So while, while coping mechanisms are designed to give us comfort from traumatic episodes, defense mechanisms are designed to protect us. A gut reaction that we do to protect us um, from this painful experience, this painful memory, a lot of that looks like just being in denial. Different ways that we are in denial, that something isn't happening, can be like you know repressing the um, repressing the event, repressing the situation. Um, Sublimation—that's a big word for just saying channeling feelings into another activity. I probably do a combination of both of these. <laughs> I've been to counseling a few times for different traumatic things that I've experienced, and my counselor was outright like, "You have the issue with avoiding." You just want to avoid, you just want to act like everything's fine. It's like, and I do that. I'm like, I'm not thinking about this. I'm not dealing with this. Everything's fine. <laughs> and instead, I turn to work. Instead, I turn to binge watching, excessive hours on the phone. Um, I really, really do probably throw myself into my work the most because it's something I can control and something I love. Um, but here's the thing. There is no shame in having coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms, or there's no shame in like that you happen at one point. My counselor was like, at one point in our life, we were navigating through something so painful. This is how we survived it, right? This is how we survived that traumatic experience. But the whole point of sanctification, which is just a big word to say, our journey into becoming more Christ-like, is that we have to grow in our awareness of this is who I was before Christ, and this is who I should be now that I know Christ. So there is no shame that you once relied on these things, but let today be the day that you open your eyes and that you see, I don't need coping mechanisms anymore. I don't need defense mechanisms anymore. My counselor told me, you get to a point where you realize they don't serve you anymore. You keep relying on them, but you don't get the same effects. <clears throat> and so, because here's the thing, as we begin to, as we go on to navigate life, there will be triggers. And I used to think that the point of triggers is to avoid them at all costs, right? Because <laughs> I'm a avoider. <laughs> um, but that's not the point. The point is to recognize when you have been triggered, acknowledge what, you, what, acknowledge what happened, think about what you're feeling, why are you feeling it, what is your gut reaction, what are, you, what are you trying to run to, what coping mechanism are you trying to run to, what defense mechanism pops up, and then realizing, okay, I should be turning to God instead of these things. So some examples of what, of how we can let our wounds define us, or at least how I've let it define me. Because of um, my upbringing and just, um, I guess, how much conflict there was and how unstable it was, I ran to friendships. And I thought it was biblical. I'm like, the Bible says there's a friend that's sticking closer than a brother. This is biblical, right? We should. We should be in community. We should have friends, yes. But I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. We can turn those things into idols, though if we begin to go to them for comfort, if we begin to go to them for security. And that's what I did. I ran to my friends, probably while I went to Jesus, but I definitely ran to my friends um, in an unhealthy uh, pattern. And because I started to find my identity in being uh, the really good friend, the really strong friend, the best friend, when I ended up in toxic friendships, I didn't know how to leave them. I didn't want to leave them. I stayed with them much longer than I should have. And that also kind of goes along with um, who I was in my family, you know, like the one that everybody depended on. So then I'm the strong friend. Everybody has to depend on me. So now I don't even know how to be vulnerable. I'm scared to be vulnerable because if I am, then maybe they'll leave. These are how my wounds have sort of framed my identity and told me these false things that I should be caring about more than God. And so here's the thing. If we don't take a hold or take root of these, um, of all of these different things that we sort of run to and turn to, um, that family and society and our wounds have let us, have told us to kind of run to, if we don't take a hold of these things, acknowledge these things, they can become idols and they can become strongholds. False identities unchecked can lead to idols and can lead to strongholds. So what's an idol? We see idols in the Bible time and time again. They're inanimate objects that people worship instead of worshiping God, right? We still do that today. 
we worship inanimate things instead of God. And so the real question is not if we have idols, because, you know, most of us probably do. I have some that I still need to, you know, deal with, cancel out fast from every now and then. So that's not the question if we have an idol. The question is how do we know when we are worshiping something? We turn to it for comfort instead of God. We turn to it to tell us our value and to give us our value instead of God. We feel like we can't live without it. And when it's taken away, we feel like our world is lost. Because how many of us know that God is a jealous God? And not because he's narcissistic or arrogant. It's because he knows that the only thing that we should be worshiping is him. He's the only thing that will give us true comfort. He's the only thing that can tell us our value. So when we worship anything that's not like that, he will take it away. First, he will convict us. He will convict our hearts to encourage us to get rid of it, right? But at some point, I do believe that he takes things away. And I've experienced this time and time again. You know, a guy rejects me or dumps me, feel like my world is falling apart. Friend tells me they don't want to be my friend anymore. Feel like my world is falling apart, guys. Like I'm missing a limb and there's a hole in my heart. If you've ever felt that way, that's a sign that you may have had an idol. And so <clears throat> let's talk about strongholds. What is a stronghold? In the Bible, a stronghold started out as something positive. You know, back in those times where there's castles, it's fortress, it's a fortress, right? To protect, um, to protect the Israelites from neighboring countries. That was what a stronghold was originally. Even, they, even in the Bible, they reference God as a mighty stronghold, you know, protecting us from different things. We see the word sort of switch when we get to New Testament, though, and it starts to call it a prison. It starts to refer to stronghold as a jail. And so it makes sense, though, if a stronghold can be used um, back in the Old Testament sort of as a way to glorify God or to even represent God. It makes sense then how the enemy wants to use it to distort it, right, and take control of it. So a stronghold nowadays is more of a prison, a jail, a fortified structure that keeps us in a pattern of sin. And so what happens is <clears throat> we end up developing um, these idols because we're turning to them for um, comfort, for our value, for security. We turn to them instead. And then when perhaps it gets taken away, we end up going to maybe a coping mechanism, going to something that gives us security or comfort, something unhealthy. And then that pattern of that, we do it over and over and over again. It becomes ingrained and becomes a stronghold. And we, come, we become fortified and imprisoned by that behavior. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up at one of those churches where we shout praise. <laughs> shout praise and have flags and all of that, y'all. I loved it. <laughs> but I could never figure out why I shout praise and I cried my eyes out and I prayed and I asked the Lord to deliver me from something and then the next day I'm right back at it. I had a stronghold because I had developed a pattern of a sinful behavior that I turned to over and over and over again. But here's the thing, we can be free from idols. We can be free from strongholds. And the first step is acknowledging that we have them. Acknowledging this is something that I turn to instead of God for comfort, for security, to give me my value, to give me my self-worth. And then recognizing maybe this is the thing that I turn to whenever um, I'm experiencing something painful. This is what I turn to whenever something that I put my identity in has been taken away. We can begin to acknowledge those things and tell God that I don't want to turn to those things anymore. And so now I want to move forward and talk through some practical things that we can do to find our identity in Christ. Now that we talked about what's the definition, what do we turn to instead, what are the dangers of staying in those places, what are some things that we can do to find our identity in Christ? Three main things I want to highlight today. We can know God more, we can know ourselves more, and we can know others more. When I'm talking about knowing God more, I'm talking about understanding, you can go to the next slide, understanding our fundamentals of faith. We have got to get into our word. We have got to know what it says. We need to be able to interpret it. And I want to say something about devotionals. There's nothing wrong with reading devotionals. 
after I've run over the holidays, you know. But the thing is, is that devotionals share an interpretation. It shares that individual's interpretation of the Bible. So at some point, we should be reading the Bible for ourselves and learning how to interpret ourselves. So there's some acronyms that we do in Chi Alpha that um, I'm really big on called PROAP. So if you want to know more about them, you can probably ask your director. Most directors use these things. But if you want to know too, you can um, email me or something. But this PROAP just stands for pray, read, um, ask observation questions like who wrote the Bible? Who are they writing to? Why are they writing this? A is application. Now that I know all of these different things, how does this apply to me today? Pray again, tell. SOAP stands for the same thing, scripture, observation questions, apply, and pray. But the thing is, <clears throat> if we're going to know what God is saying about us, what qualities and characteristics we should have, we have to know the God who's saying all of these things. This is the first fundamental foundational step. You will not get any further if you skip this part. We have to know who God is. You can ask your directors, small group leader staff, what are some of the fundamentals of faith that um, they think are important. Um, for me, these are just a few. Like, do we know the Trinity's role in our lives? Like, do we know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? When I tell you, when I first started to um, learn about the individual roles, I had the hardest time with God the Father. And I didn't know why. I was like, I know Jesus as the Savior, yes. I know the Holy Spirit as sort of the in-between. You know, he's here because Jesus had to go up to heaven. Who is, who is God? And what I realized is that I had a hard time with God the Father because I, I was having a hard time with my earthly father. I didn't know what the characteristics of God was supposed to be because while my father was present, um, he had some different things going on that he was physically present but not all the way present if some of y'all get my drift. And so these are, the, these are the areas that we start with. Who is God the Father? Who is God the Son? Who is God the Holy Spirit? How do we read the Bible? How do we pray? How do we have a consistent, quiet time? Something else that I learned in Chi Alpha was the importance of worship and how to worship. Y'all love praise music. I love dancing. I love praising God. But I was like, I don't like worship music. It's slow. <laughs> Until I went to one of the Chi Alpha breakouts, God was like, you need to go to this Chi Alpha breakout because you have no idea what worship is. We need to know these things. And if you want um, to, one of the ways, practical ways that you can try to be set free from idols and strongholds is fasting. And there are different ways that you can fast. You don't have to go into the deep end and do 40 days and 40 nights, you know what I mean? But we should know what is fasting, what's the importance of it. Some other things that you can do, is that know ourselves? Oh, is it know God? I just put the wrong thing up top, it's okay. Um, sitting under sound doctrine. Understanding legalism versus relationship. That was a big key thing for me. I just did sort of blind obedience, but um, what that often led to for me was a lot of condemnation, like feeling like I just need to obey God and whenever I fall short, I'm going to go to hell. And so instead of just blind obedience, we should understand God's heart for obedience. We should go from legalism to relationship. If you don't understand why God is asking you to do something, ask the question. I once heard um, a, a pastor say, Dr. Tony Evans, you can ask God questions without questioning God. He wants us to do that. If you don't know why you're not supposed to have sex before marriage, that's okay. Ask somebody. Get in the word. Don't just have blind, oh, blindly, well, it's okay if you blindly be obey with that one, but what tends to happen with that one, though, is that um, we're like, oh, this doesn't make sense, and we just do it anyway, but then we may feel bad afterwards. At least that, that was my testimony. I'll speak for myself. I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, but I didn't know why, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do instead, and so I just felt like a horrible Christian all the time. So I really want to encourage you guys, as you get to know God more, and as questions come up, do the work, research, ask questions, talk to someone. Also, developing a biblical worldview. Biblical worldview is basically saying and recognizing that I believe in what the Bible says on how we should navigate our lives. I believe in the Bible's truths. And so we have to begin to sift through, excuse me, some of the lies that we may believe versus the truth about God. So those are some of the next steps I have up there. You know, learn how to read the Bible, go to a large group, go to a small group, get in one-on-ones if you're not already doing that. 
And then you can also get into a local church. Just sitting under sound doctrine is going to be important. Not just listening to sermons that tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. That's like a diet on like sweet food. Every time it tastes good, it's going to rot your teeth out. We got to listen to doctrine. We got to listen to the word that's going to convict us and change our hearts and make us want to grow closer to God. Some book recommendations, if you just want to get Fundamentals of Faith, a celebration of discipline. And if you want some biblical worldviews, the reason for God. I forget who the celebration of discipline is written by. Um, I can let you know. If you're, oh, who's, oh, y'all know. Who's saying it? Richard Foster. Richard Foster. <laughs> okay, and then the reason for God is written by Timothy Keller. If you want some generalized biblical worldviews. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is know yourself more. Know ourselves more. And so after we know the God who has created us, we should go on a journey to figure out how he's created us, right? I know he created me. How did he create me? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are my passions and what are my pains? What do I mean by passions and pains? We were created in the image of God. The different gifts, the different, the different desires that he's put inside of us is because they were in him first. But the different pains that we have some of the things that make you hurt, that make you sad, like the different things in the world that you get upset about. A lot of people want to know, what is my purpose in life? These are some of the ways that you can begin to figure that out. <clears throat> I think I'll talk about purpose in life in the next slide, so I'll just stop there. But what are your passions, what are your pains, and what are your wounds? There are a lot of Christians out there that have unprocessed trauma. I don't know if you guys have met them before. They're mean. <laughs> They bite people's head off all the time. It's unprocessed trauma. Hurt people hurt people. But whole people can help. Heal people can help heal other people. So we have to begin to deal with big words like rejection, abandonment, unforgiveness. What happened to us? How did it affect us? Why was it painful? And again, what are the coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms that we're turning to instead of God? Can we grow and our self-awareness so that we can begin to know who God has created us to be and the identity that he wants us to have. So some next steps that you can do. Do the uh, personal assessment you're comfortable with. I'm really not trying to get into argument about Enneagram, so if that's not your vibe, don't do it. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> another popular one is Myers-Briggs. Some leadership ones that are really good are the DISC assessment, Strengths Finder. And when it comes to figuring out your wounds, some great things you can do is a timeline of your life. Just go from birth to where you are, some big moments in your life, writing down what happened, thinking about what did you learn in that moment. Um, a family genogram. <clears throat> this is sort of like a family tree, but it goes a little bit deeper and you start to think about it. You start to think about some of the different things that characterizes grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, and even yourself. And I'll actually show you um, uh, an example of a family genogram in one of the slides. Um, and the last thing, oh, can you go back, sorry. This one. Go back to the other one. Yeah, counseling. Y'all already know I've been talking about counseling. In my opinion, everybody needed <laughs> Counseling and then books, The Emotionally Healthy Leader or Spirituality. There's two different books, The Emotionally Healthy Leader or The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. He actually talks about the family genogram in there and some other fundamentals of faith as well. Um, I read that book probably like once a year. So example of a family genogram. This is mine up here. Um, but yeah, it just you're, it basically has like my grandparents on my mom's side, my grandparents on my dad's side, and then the squiggly lines. All of those are symbols um, that represent either abuse or represent like dysfunction or people being cut off for one another. And so you can go to the next one. And the thing that I learned this is just my grandma, this is just my mom's side of the family. The thing that I learned after doing my family genogram is that there are deep-rooted issues in my family that go all the way back to my grandmother. And one of the big things that I notice is that we have a tendency to help others, but to help others to the detriment of our well-being, all under the guise of responsibility and duty. So what did that let me know? I have an issue with helping people to the detriment of myself. In the internship, they said, Mary, you have a savior complex. I was like, what is that? <laughs> but I love people. I want to help them. But 
to the detriment of my own well-being. It becomes, it's not healthy. But what I saw is that there are so many people who did it in my family. So this family genogram let me know that this was a stronghold in my family, a pattern of sin that is not helpful. And if I don't uproot it, it can keep going. I don't believe in generational curses because I believe that Jesus died on the cross to break curses. But I do believe in generational consequences. That there can be things passed down from family line to family line that can seep in and begin to shape our identity, define our identity, and it's up to us to realize we're supposed to go from an old man to a new man, but we won't know how to do that until we do some deep diving and become more self-aware of ourselves and our wounds. And go to the next slide. And the next slide. And so lastly, I want to talk about knowing others. Oh. a good point. I honestly just um, wrote out as much as I could. Uh, my grandfather, most, some of them had passed away, but I just tried to remember some of the things that my family members had told me about them. Um, one of the things that the book recommended was also just asking your family members if you want to be that bold. <laughs> um, you know, if you want to be bold and ask your grandparents or your aunts and uncles to tell them, like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that have happened in our family. I honestly wish I would have done that with some of my grandparents before they passed away because I feel like I don't know very much about them. But the information that I put down was just sort of characteristics that I remembered based off of observation of just looking at how my family operated at holidays, <laughs> how they operated communication with one another. Um, and you, I, I don't know, I heard things in my family, we don't talk to that person anymore, you know, like, things like that, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, and so moving on, practical ways to find our identity in Christ. I think the next step, after we go on the journey to know God, to know the God that created us, to know how, like, how the different things that he created us, knowing others is when we get to the point of asking God, why did you create me? So this is the part where we're talking about um, purposes in life. I think uh, one of the main ways of knowing our purpose in life is we are here. It's a timer to let me know I need to stop talking soon. <laughs> we are here for two reasons, to love God and to help others love God. And typically we can do those in two ways, right? Vocation and our calling. And so vocation a lot of times is you have been given a set of gifts and you need to get a job so you can make money to put a roof over your head and to eat food, right? That's a vocation, simply so that I can live. But a calling is, I maybe, I maybe feel that God is calling me to a group of people um, or to a situation to help them grow closer to God, to make the world a better place. And so when we begin to ask God, why did you create me? Again, thinking through our strengths, our weaknesses, our passions, our pains, and our wounds, <clears throat> so, we be, so we can begin to ask God, what gifts and experiences have you given me that I can use to help others in this world? 2 Corinthians 1 and 4 is one of my favorite Bible verses that I live by. Paul says that he believes that he has suffered so that he can go back and comfort people in the way that the Holy Spirit has comforted him. And so when we talk about knowing God, we're talking about not just being here to soak up all the knowledge that we have and that's it. We soak up all the knowledge that we have so we can share it with others, so that we can help others, so that we can give back to others. And so some of us do that by, I know a lot of people that do it through vocation. Some people, it ends, their calling ends up becoming their vocation. So for me as a missionary, I feel called to minister to college students to teach them how to authentically have a relationship with Christ and live abundantly here, right? But it has become my vocation because I also make money doing that. You take my older brother, for instance, though. He's like, nah, sis, that's never going to be me. <laughs> and that's okay. I love the way that the Lord has wired him. He has a, a very strong desire for generational wealth. So he has a job in insurance. I have no idea what it is, something with insurance. He makes a lot of money. 
And my prayer is that for some of you in here, that's um, the way that the Lord allows you to go. You make a lot of money so you can be a kingdom builder, right? And so his nine to five, Monday through Friday, is something dealing with insurance where he makes a lot of money to take care of his um, wife and his house. And hopefully, well, he doesn't have a house yet, but, you know, saving up for it. Anyway, not the point. But <laughs> he's doing all of that Monday through Friday. But his calling is to African-American men um, at risk to let them know this may be your starting point. This, this doesn't have to be your end. And so what does that look like for him? Big brother, big sister. So much so that when the young man's mother died of an aneurysm, they called my brother. He was the first person that they called. My brother uses his money to help them by giving them the shoes for them to play sports. He says once he get another car, he's going to give his car to them. So you can have this generational wealth to take care of yourself, but also use it to be a kingdom builder as well if you end up in a vocation that has a separate calling. But as you go on the journey to know what is my identity in Christ, first get to know the God who has created you. Then get to know how he has created you. Then begin to ask the question, why have you created me? So you can make a difference on this earth. So some next steps. Become a leader within Chi Alpha. <laughs> Shameless plug. That is our hope for all of you in here today that before you leave your college campus that you will serve in some sort of capacity and to let people know, your peers know about the God that you know. You can ask the different staff members and individuals what are the different ways that you can serve. Maybe some of you can do contact tabling. Um, maybe you can, you know, set up, um, help set up parties. Maybe you can be a small group leader, anything like that. You can also serve at a local church. You can also do like a spiritual gift study. A book that I that was really helpful for me is called The Rule of Life. Again, I will look up who wrote it later. <laughs> but um, he talks about it in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book. He does like a chapter on it. I wanted a separate book on it so that I can get a like a whole, a more concise explanation of it. But it just kind of sort of talks about like what's your mission and vision in life and why are you here? I knew, I already knew my mission and vision in life, but um, I, was, I wanted a more concise version because I was getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And so anyway, it just sort of helps you pinpoint um, where the Lord may be leading you to focus on based off of your strengths, weaknesses, passions, pains, and your wounds. And so in closing, I want to read this Bible passage because I think it just really summarizes and paints a, a good picture of what I'm talking about with going from our old man to our new man, and making the effort to know our identity in Christ. It's in Zechariah Zachari 3, 1 through 3, and it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So what's the context of this? Um, this is God giving Zechariah a prophet, a vision of the condition of the church during that time period. And he was letting them know, while the Israelites as a whole may stand before me, feeling like they have been convicted of sin, wearing filthy rags. I could condemn them to hell, but instead they are a stick snatched from the burning fire, and instead he gives them clothes made as white as snow. This is a, a prophecy, a foreshadowing of Jesus coming in the New Testament. Later on in this passage, he, he continues to tell them, you will continue to stand before me in white clothes. All you have to do is follow my example. All you have to do is follow my follow my command. All you have to do is live for Jesus. And so I really wanted to just leave you guys with this imagery that when we are born into this world full of sin and shaped with iniquity, we, stand, we could potentially be standing before God with filthy clothes, right? But God says we don't have to remain in that. That he gives us a new identity. He gives us a new man. A new, we are new creations in him. The old is gone. And he takes away all of those filthy clothes and gives us clothes as white as snow. And so my prayer for you guys as you, as you leave this room is that your eyes, your eyes become wide open to the identities 
that you have let define you that are contrary to God, because they will only lead to idols. They will only lead to strongholds. They will only lead to false identities. And what God desires is for us to be a new creation in Christ. He desires for us to be whole, to be free, to know why we're here on this earth. And so that's, that's honestly my prayer for you guys. So I'm going to pray out and give um, some more instructions. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, God, for who you are. I thank you so much for what you've done in this room today, Lord. I pray that you have opened blind eyes to let us see the truth, God. That even though we are born into this world full of sin, shaped with, around the sin of others, that we don't have to remain in that way, God. I thank you for allowing us to be adopted into your family and given a new identity, God. The old is gone and the new is here. And I pray that from this moment forward, everyone in this room will go on the journey to discover what is my new identity? What was the old identity that I was clinging to that no longer serves me? So God, I pray that you open blind eyes. I pray that you allow them to see. I pray that you allow this to be the, the marking moment that they walk into their healing, that they examine the wounds that they have, but that they realize they don't have to stay in them anymore. I give you glory and I give you honor and praise for what is already done. In your Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so can we go to the next slide? That is the end of this class. Um, there is another breakout, I think, at 11.10 or 11 o'clock? 11.10. 11.10. So um, you can take a water break, do what you want. Um, I do have these discussion questions up here if you felt like you wanted to do that as well. Um, you can split up into those groups and um, answer some of these questions and just kind of process what you've talked about. Um, the questions are what stood out the most to you from today's class. Um, there are some other things that we tend to get our identity from, like family, society, and wounds. Which of these three do you believe has helped shape your identity in good ways? Which has shaped your identity, your identity in bad ways? Uh, what, which area do you feel like the Lord is leading you to to be able to discover your identity? Know God more, know yourself more, know others more. And um, what practical step can you take today to go on the journey to discover your identity? And who will you share this information with to hold you accountable? Right? I hope this, my prayer is that this won't just be a, a class that you heard information and as soon as you leave it all goes away, but maybe something stuck. Even if one thing stuck, you say, I'm going to work on this and move forward in my faith, and you share it with someone to hold you accountable, and you can pray out with one another. Um, and then I'm going to sit up here too, I guess, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions. But yeah, so feel free to break up into small groups or head to your next class or go use the bathroom. But thank you guys for attending.